Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am hunky-dory. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. It's the end of the year, so we figured we'd take a look back at 2022 and throw uh, out the story we thought was the biggest of the year, or at least one of the biggest of the year, one that defined the business of showbiz in some way, one that will continue to define the business of showbiz in some way, uh, and one that, you know, may have been a little bit controversial as it was happening. It's been a weird and interesting year uh, in a lot of ways, and I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot of that. I mean, there's drama in boardrooms at Disney and Warner Brothers. There's uh, the abrupt shift in streaming economics, you know, from grow at all costs to try and make money now, you know, from growing to profit. It's it's a tricky thing. The fact that theaters continue to slowly recover, uh, but kind of lack the product to return to pre-pandemic levels of box office revenue. Um, But I think the biggest story of the year is one that's going to take a few years to shake out fully and it's finally happening i think this is going to be this is it this is where what we've all been waiting for and that's uh the the full-on unbundling right the move by streamers into sports programming is going to be the thing that kills cable once and for all i think the biggest play on this front uh, so far was Amazon Prime Video's purchase of exclusive rights to Thursday Night Football. Amazon bought the rights to play one game a week for about $11 billion over 11 years, meaning they're spending about a billion dollars a year, about $60 million a game. Uh, it's been a qualified success, I think, though it kind of depends on how you want to measure success, right? Prime Video said that they saw a record number of signups over the three-hour period that preceded the first game. Uh, and the national nature of the NFL means that markets all over the country are signing up signing up for, at the very least, Prime Video or Amazon Prime itself. But I mean, look, uh, Prime Video activations are kind of the key here because roughly half, a little more than that, of the households in the country already have access to the service given That's how many folks subscribe to Prime. But they just haven't turned on their Prime video. They don't know they have it. Amazon is trying to get folks on that train. As a subscriber activation play, undoubtedly very smart. As an in-house advertising play for shows like Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, Jack Reacher, whatever, right? It also makes a lot of sense. One way to think about NFL rights and NFL deals in general, uh, they're so expensive because... They give the networks a captive audience to show what new programs are hitting airwaves over the year on network TV. It's why you see 17,000 ads for whatever CBS sitcom is coming out whenever you watch a, a, a NFC or AFC football game. Whether or not all the financials work is another question, right? Amazon promised ad buyers that each game would hit around 12.5 million viewers, uh, and they have not hit that. I think they're averaging about 11 million uh, is what Amazon says, but we'll see. This is the future of streaming. YouTube TV just bought the rights to NFL Sunday Ticket for $2.5 billion a year. There's no way to generate $2.5 billion on uh, NFL Sunday Ticket. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. So this is a play to get people on YouTube, to get them fully divorced from the cable ecosystem, to get people to cut the cord and sign up for what is what amounts to now just a different cable package. It's kind of funny how these things have grown and expanded and are now just as expensive, but that's a conversation for another time. Peacock making inroads with soccer and wrestling fans. Apple TV picked up exclusive MLS rights for their season pass service uh, and has been showing Major League Baseball games on Friday night. ESPN Plus is hugely popular with MMA fans because they have a rights deal with UFC. It's only a matter of time before the NBA follows suit with let's say maybe HBO Max, which has a pretty good relationship, as everybody knows, with TNT and TBS, which currently airs basketball games. 
Here's the thing, and this is why this is so important. Making hit TV shows is really effing hard. It's incredibly difficult. Stranger Things-sized hits don't grow on trees. It's, it's impossible to predict what the market's going to want. You, you get lucky on something like this, and that's great. Sports rights are valuable because there are tons and tons of people who watch sports, and those fans are loyal, and you have them captive if you have the rights to show their games. If, to, if you have to turn on a network to watch a game, you're going to get that network. People love sports, they love their sports teams, and they are willing to sign up for things to get access to them. I will just speak from experience here. I know uh, probably 50 people who have DirecTV just to watch Packers games. Well, that, that's crazy amount of money. That's that's a lot of revenue that you're that you're getting when you sign folks like that up. Um, and once the streaming services start taking those rights deals away from basic cable and away from the networks, it's only a matter of time before unbundling becomes the norm rather than what everybody is doing just on on the outside. And that's going to change the economics of Hollywood entirely. I mean, that's going to change the economics of everything. So that's my that was my take on the big story of the year. Sorry, I, I went on a, a bit there, but it's I think it's really I think it's really underappreciated how much things are going to be changing here in the next uh, few years on this front. Alyssa, what was your big story of the year? I think the continued disconnection between U- the U.S. and China in pop culture is going to be the story that it's been ongoing for a couple of years. It's intensified this year, and it's going to have incredibly long term impacts on what. Um, the U.S. is able to produce in a lot of different arenas. You know, we saw that American movies had continued trouble getting into the Chinese market this year. That was probably intensified by the the fact that this was one of the years in which China holds its party Congress. And so especially under Xi Jinping, the country has become significantly more nationalist. And I think there was, you know, Part of that has been China's efforts to develop its sort of homegrown blockbuster industry. And they were not, for political reasons beyond like the normal set of bizarre political reasons, were not going to encourage a lot of U.S. pop culture to be in the ecosystem. But even those movies that did get in uh, underperformed for various reasons. The Batman did, I think, significantly worse than Warners had hoped it would. Avatar The Way of Water, which should have been a massive hit, is running into China's massive COVID wave. But there is some sense that Chinese audiences during a couple of years when they've been withheld from the market have gotten somewhat less interested in American blockbusters and somewhat more interested in the kinds of, you know, big tentpole movies that Chinese studios are creating. If you look at the Chinese domestic box office, a lot of it was dominated by um, sequels to significant hits that that domestic industry has developed. And then in the U.S., you're starting to see a really tough conversation taking place about TikTok, the ByteDance-owned, you know, video app that is wildly popular among Americans. But that many suspect is essentially functioning as a Chinese intelligence operation. TikTok actually acknowledged today that a couple of employees had uh, access user data, including that of reporters, um, American reporters, improperly. And so, you know, you're seeing lawmakers both in states and at the federal level start proposing bans on the app on government-owned devices. Um, But I think that there is going to be much more significant concern in coming years about the extent to which Chinese-developed apps are effectively an influence operation or a data-gathering operation. TikTok in in China is significantly sort of less of a wild west and less entertaining. And so I think you may start to see the 
U.S. lawmakers expo- you know, subject Chinese products, Chinese apps to increased scrutiny. And of course, you know, this will have an enormous impact on movies in particular, which for a long time had really baked in the assumption of significant Chinese box office into, you know, what they projected superhero movies, action movies would make. And if that market is no longer reliable, we're going to see studios assess whether they need to go the Netflix route and just decide that dealing with China is too much of a hassle and scale their ambitions accordingly. So I think we're going to see a lot of friction in that relationship with results both for what U.S. consumers have access to and for what gets made at all. Is it wish casting on my part to say, okay, maybe this means uh, if you can't do the $250 million superhero movie anymore, you can only do the $150 million superhero movie these days maybe we'll have fewer of those just in general maybe we'll get a maybe we'll get a resurgence in the the mid the mid budget movie for adults or am i just am i just dreaming here is that I think that's probably wish casting. What is not wish casting, though, is that um, after years of sort of career purgatory, we actually have three Richard Gere projects in development. Um, So the actor who's been largely exiled from Hollywood, given his support of um, Tibetan independence, you know, seems to be making a little bit of a comeback. I've actually started getting press release nudges about at least one of these projects. So we know they're happening. So we may not, you know, if the Richard Gere essence heralds the return of the sort of mid-budget movie for adults, then maybe you get both of your wishes, but I suspect you're only going to get one. I, I as as uh, readers of my Washington Post uh, columns know, I I said that we need Richard Gere to get more projects just to spite China. So spite, that's a good reason to do anything. Peter, what was the big story of the year from your point of view? Early this year, Netflix reported their first ever decline in subscribers, and that set in motion. Uh, kind of a revolution in the streaming business that had boomed during the pandemic and become the focus of um, Hollywood business models even after theaters came back online. Um, A whole bunch of things happened as a result of Netflix reporting that decline. So first, Netflix announced they'd do a new ad-supported tier, something they promised they would never do. They also began looking at putting movies into theaters, leading to, for example, a one-week medium-sized run of the movie we're going to talk about later, uh, Knives Out 2, Glass Onion. Wall Street really soured on Netflix and other streaming, uh, uh, other streamers, uh, resulting in huge stock price declines. Netflix fired a bunch of people, and other streamers began t- looking to downsize as well. Studios realized that they needed to put movies in theaters, and that $90 million feature film bets like Batgirl which Warner Brothers had planned for HBO Max and then canceled without airing anywhere over the summer, those big bets for streaming first or streaming only, they simply didn't work because what the Netflix subscriber drop showed was that the streaming-focused business model or the streaming-only business model was simply not sustainable as envisioned. And that, in turn, is going to mean less spending on content, which means many fewer shows being put into production, which means uh, fewer things for us to watch, but also fewer jobs for writers and other uh, Hollywood professionals, which is probably going to result in a Writers Guild strike next year. And if Sonny is right, that might mean demands for streamers to start releasing their viewing data, which would just be a huge, uh, just a huge thing for streamers to do. And all of this, the streaming business turmoil, studios looking uh, back to theaters for revenue, distribution and release model changes across the industry, um, reduced spend on, on new content, 
All of that traces back to that first report from Netflix that they were losing subscribers. It was really a sign that the streaming business as we know it, uh, which in some ways has dominated Hollywood at least for the last three years and was sort of seen as Hollywood's future, it doesn't really work as envisioned. That doesn't mean that streaming is going to go away, but it does mean that it's going to have to change. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the streaming business model, and I, I've talked about this ad nauseum on this show and other shows, uh, but the streaming the streaming business model has always been really interesting in the sense that you have one service, Netflix, that had first mover advantage that basically is functioning as a replacement for basic cable, and, you know, that that can work for them because they're generating, you know, 30 whatever billion dollars of revenue. So, like, okay, that makes sense for Netflix. Everybody else trying to ape Netflix is doing it wrong because, A, they'll never be able to generate that much revenue, but, B, they should be using streaming as a way to replace the revenue streams that were lost when physical media has, has you know, physical media hasn't gone away, knock on wood, yet. But the, you know, it is not a mass consumer product anymore. And cable channels are going to be going away soon. There's going to be a lot of rights money that gets lost uh, in that in that regard. So like streaming makes sense for a company like Warner Brothers, where you have HBO Max and we're, we're going to make a ton of money here, but it's not going to be Netflix money. It's going to be DVD money and TBS money. And it, it is weird that it took people so long to recognize that fact, which seemed fairly obvious from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, as someone who was sort of mocked relentlessly for, you know, saying like, I, a simple country moron, don't understand how, you know, replacing all of these revenue streams with one revenue stream is going to work long term. You know, I I mean, I had people giving me an incredibly hard time about that for a long time, but like, it seems like it was true. So, I, I mean, as I have said on this podcast before, I think the bet was that you could take a lot of families that maybe only went to the movies once a year, which is uh, the average number of times that like most people go to the movies each year. And instead of getting one ticket per each for per family member uh, per year, you could get a monthly fee from them and that that would be more money than you would get from theaters. Now, I in the end, I think that bet clearly wasn't going to pay off um, and the competition from HBO Max and Disney Plus in particular, but even from things like, you know, Paramount Plus, which is not a huge concern, but has has a business. I don't think it's a, a super sustainable one, but they have a business right now. The, the flourishing of streaming options, I think, has proven harder for Netflix to compete with than Netflix execs were expecting a few years ago when they sort of saw, oh, look, we're first in this space and we're going to hoover up so much, uh, so much money, so much attention. We are going to become the essential thing in part because people know us. We've got to, because that's our brand, because you know everybody's already paying for it, but in part because we have so much content that nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going to stop their subscription because they just like there's because there's enough. And it turned out that just having a lot is not enough. I mean, Netflix is not, again, they're, they're not going to go away. It's not like going to fail as a company. That's not what's going to happen. But it turns out that content quality and desirability also matters and in a way that I think Netflix had somewhat underrated. And we've particularly seen that with regards to Disney+, Plus, which has just done really well, not churning out a huge amount of original content, but making sure that they focus their original content on stuff that had huge brand name recognition. Marvel and Star Wars and that sort of thing. And that has that has brought people in because people will pay for those big IPs. Well, and they've also, you know, recognized that the weekly release model has significant advantages over the binge model in terms of building long term audience. And, you know, sometimes innovation isn't necessary. 
as I think Netflix is discovering somewhat to its peril. I will say I will say that Netflix's Netflix's uh, initial dump seasons at once model made some sense at, to like differentiate them from the marketplace and like I I get it I think it I think it I think it was smart for House of Cards for Stranger Things you get people they watch it all in a weekend they got some but we have seen them pulling back from that a little bit I mean the new Harry and Meghan show right uh, Harry uh, uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Meghan Markle show is coming out on like a weekly ish schedule uh which is interesting i think it's i think they recognize and even it. their big season uh you know full season dumps are now not actually full season uh binge mod you know dumps um like you you look at something like ozark where the final season came out in two different sections right uh, two i believe yeah. seven or six or seven episode um sequences and so you could watch the first half of it but then you had to watch wait and watch the rest of it two months later or something like that and you know, again, that is a, that is a product of competition. And uh, while that while Ozark, the Ozark decision was made before the streaming drop, I, I think all of this kind of stems from the realization that the the streaming model as you know, with and the the kind of content spend that we have seen over the last five years is just it's not sustainable and something's going to have to change. Speaking of streaming and sustainability, uh, we're going to move on to the main event now. Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Uh, I said earlier that nobody gets a streaming channel for new movies, uh, or at the very least, you know, it's it's hard to get folks to come come hang out for uh, Batgirl, right? But uh, I, I do think that Glass Onion might be the exception that proves the rule, or and certainly Netflix thinks that, because they spent nearly half a billion dollars on the rights to make two Knives Out sequels uh, because the original was insanely popular when it hit the streamer. And Knives Out is that rare piece of IP to hit the open market, that rare piece of intellectual property that somebody could snap up and build a franchise around. Though interestingly, I mean, uh, this is in the weeds a little bit, but Netflix didn't actually buy the rights to Knives Out or Benoit Blanc. They just bought the rights to make the next two movies, which, you know, we'll see if that comes back to bite them. Uh, it's not often you get a chance to buy a franchise. Netflix jumped at it, uh, and they they believe folks would flock to the service as a result. We'll see if that happens. But the movie itself, let's talk about that. Glass Onion sees the return of Benoit Blanc, played here as before by Daniel Craig. Uh, sidelined and out of sorts thanks to the pandemic, he is whisked away to the private island of an Elon Musk-style billionaire named Miles Braun, played by Edward Norton. Uh, there, Benoit joins a disparate coterie of hangers-on. There's a Twitch streamer who's played by Dave Bautista, a governor and Senate candidate played by Catherine Hahn, an in-house scientist played by Leslie Odom Jr., a wealthy socialite-slash-sweatpants designer uh, played by Kate Hudson, and a spurned business associate played by Janelle Monet. And they hang out, they blow off some steam, and they're gonna do a little dinner murder mystery thing. Murder mystery that gets all too real. Backstabbing abounds as we learn one by one that each of these people has reason to hope for Braun's untimely passing. Uh, like the first Knives Out, there's a political re relevance here that's less subtext than text. It's the thing above the subtext. You know, it's the text. And though I, I bet even Ryan Johnson is kind of surprised by how big a fool Elon Musk has managed to make of himself over the last six months, it's it's still all kind of right there and fairly relevant. And uh, I think people are going to have some fun with the memes once this hits Netflix. I find both of these Knives Out movies to be just a little bit too pleased with themselves, but they're also pretty darn entertaining. Uh, it helps that the casts are so stacked. I mean, this is this is a movie, Knives Out to Glass Onion, whatever we want to call it, 
it's a movie where Ethan Hawke shows up for literally 60 seconds and he, all he does is like spray throat spray in the characters so they don't have to wear a mask through the whole movie and then he's gone. He never appears again. I thought there would be some sort of like he's going to come back, maybe he's like a he's a he's a part of the 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 mystery that unravels. No, he just shows up and then he's he's gone. Because when you have $450 million to make two movies, you can throw a million dollars at Ethan Hawke to show up on set for a day, I guess. The plot itself is slightly less clever than I think it thinks it is. Um, and the doubled structure of the story, will, I'm sure we'll talk about this more in a minute, uh, essentially repeats it twice in a way that is both clever, but also kind of tedious. All in all, though, it's funny. It zips along. Um, uh, it's a it's a weirdly perfect little time capsule for our moment, or at least our moment a few moments ago. Alyssa, what did you make of Glass Onion? I felt like this was less than the sum of its parts, though the parts are pretty charming, particularly Daniel Craig and Janelle Monet, who I am an early booster of and have just been incredibly pleased to see become like a real sort of multi-hyphenate star because she is incredible. But, you know, watching this movie had me think back a little bit to Death on the Nile, which we watched earlier this year, and which is obviously an inferior movie. But at the same time, it illustrates the difference between what Agatha Christie did incredibly well and what I think Ryan Johnson does okay with, which is sort of build in its characters' backstories and reveals. And so, you know, in Death on the Nile, you have this you know, incredibly complicated group of people who've been brought together for this wedding of a socialite that they hate. And, you know, part of solving the mystery is by eliminating suspects, but the backstories that, you know, that Christie and then, you know, Kenneth Branagh have sort of devised for the characters are sort of poignant and well-developed in ways that... (sighs) aren't quite equaled here, right? I mean, there's nothing in Glass in glass Onion that is nearly as, you know, poignant as the discovery that, like, the annoying rich lady and her nurse are, like, they're actually a couple, and the only way that they can be together is to put together this sort of, like, absurd performance where one of them is this incredible hypochondriac and the other one is just sort of irritated with her. And the relationships between the characters in Glass Onion don't entirely make sense, right? Like, you know, you have Catherine Hahn playing this, I think she's supposed to be the Demo- Democratic governor of Connecticut, who is like somehow still hanging out with two people who like absolutely destroy her political career to be associated with, right? Like, why is she still friends with Duke and Bertie? Like, what, you know, is the friendship like kind of a secret? Is it You know, does it reflect something about, like, her own values? There's just sort of nothing there. And so the, you know, the character work just ends up being not terribly engaging. And, and, you know, Christy, like, Christy was just much better at developing these sort of deft character sketches that provided deep wells of motivation without necessarily having to go too deep on any of them. And... I think that extends in particular to Miles Braun because from a political perspective, the revelation that Miles is just an idiot is not as sort of relevant or damning a condemnation of tech industry people as Johnson seems to think it is, right? I mean, whatever else you might think of Elon Musk, who is, you know, in the process of beclowning himself for his $44 billion hobby, like, he's not a stupid person in general, right? I mean, he, like, 
I think he is pretty dumb about U.S. politics and has, like, not thought through his, you know, supposed commitment to free speech very deeply. But, like, the guy is running, you know, a company that has revolutionized the electric car industry. He's, like, kind of become the private contractor that makes NASA still a thing. You know, he's keeping internet going in Ukraine during, an, you know, an incredibly brutal war there. Like, the guy's not actually a full-scale idiot, right? Like, he is making a fool of himself in certain highly specific ways, but saying, like, oh, all tech bros are just dumbasses is not actually a penetrating observation about that, you know, that industry, the culture that has grown up around it, etc. And so I think that's just a sort of a substantial weakness of the movie that made it much less engaging to me than I expected it to be. Yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing about Braun is I I, I think of him almost I think of him and his his friends slash hangers on as as kind of a wheel. He's he's the hub. They are the spokes off it. And the reason they are all attached to him is because he is the one with the extremely large amount of money. And there's like a there is a truth to that. There is a there is an absolute set of parasitic relationships that exist like that. You know who it reminds me of a little bit is movie directors. Movie directors have lots of people like this just kind of hanging on them, waiting for gigs and jobs and that sort of thing. Um, they also tend to be less smart than they think they are, but I'll leave that aside. Uh, Peter, uh, what did you what did you make of Glass Onion? I largely enjoyed this. I thought it was a significant improvement on the first film. It's just a little bit sharper, a little bit funnier. I thought the pandemic uh, aspect of it was really well done. Just uh, the you mentioned Ethan Hawke's extremely short appearance uh, as the guy who sprays their mouths uh, so that they don't have to wear masks. And what's great about it is the movie lets you wonder if maybe that's just complete nonsense and just a, a pretext for removing the, ma the masks or whether like maybe the billionaire actually has special access to some sort of advanced, you know, uh, mouth spray that actually right like and the movie doesn't tell you and it, in a way that i think is is kind of funny and smart um uh though i also was wondering if ethan hawk would maybe show up and be the murderer which would have been really kind of amusing um i like the i i mostly like the double structure um i i think it runs a little bit long um and so the movie does feel a little bit draggy in that middle section because of this right this movie is about two hours and 20 minutes and it probably should have been about two hours and five or two hours and eight minutes um it's just about 10 15 minutes uh too long i think i think daniel craig is is kind of delightful and as as benoit blanc right and just he's he is a great tribute to Agatha Christie-style detectives, but also a great uh, kind of deconstruction of them. And that's what I liked about this movie most, is that it manages to both pay, pay tribute and sort of be an homage to Christie, but also to subtly twist and tweak and use Christie's forms in ways to sort of not maybe deconstruct the mystery exactly, but to, to make sort of... Uh, to to kind of to make to make something that is a, a little bit more comic um, and a little bit less about sort of like let's be clever in our mystery solving and in fact like the revelation is that there's nothing clever going on the revelation is that that this was all stupid and it's just Blanc has to be able to see through the stupidity I agree with Alyssa's critiques to some degree but they just didn't bother me that much like the the characters are sharply drawn you know uh, caricatures right and so the fact that 
that they don't quite make sense as real people and as and have real um you know have, have real backstories that like actually in the real world would make sense it did it felt like to me it felt like it was it was a cartoon I guess it didn't they didn't work for me particularly well as caricatures either right because like caricatures have to see through an excellent caricature sees through to the truth of a person in a given position, right? And reveals a ridiculousness or an oddity or a hypocrisy about that. And these characters just didn't feel like they had insight into the particular sort of dilemmas and behaviors of people in their particular positions. Can I make a suggestion here as to why they they don't work exactly or or why they're, they feel just a little off? I feel like when you're... And look, I am not an Agatha Christie expert. I've only read a couple Agatha Christie novels. I've only seen uh, a couple of of movies based on Agatha Christie books. But when I when I'm watching an Agatha Christie mystery or reading an Agatha Christie book, I I get the sense that we are mostly supposed to sympathize or empathize with all of the suspects, or at least most of them. And in both uh, Knives Out and Glass Onion, I feel like we're both we're supposed to basically hate. Everybody who is under consideration for the crime in question, and I think there's but as like a, someone there's a, whose heart is full of malice. Well, shouldn't the, you appreciate that? In theory, this would appeal to me more, but there's there's a smarmy sneering quality to it that I I, I find just a little bit off putting. Alyssa, you're you're the Agatha Christie person. I, am I is that is that a, is that a no, misread I here? I, I don't think that's wrong. I mean, I think that Christie sees her character's sort of weakness and weaknesses and failings quite clearly, but. You know, Poirot is an excellent, I mean, and she has multiple detectives, of course, but Poirot in particular is interested in people, right? I mean, he's a good detective in part because he's empathetic and, you know, notices things about the nuances of relationships between characters. And obviously, you know, Poirot is the detective on which Benoit Blanc is most closely based. So yeah, no, no, I don't think that's wrong. Yeah, I I thought it mostly earned its smugness. I agree to some extent, but it didn't bother me as much as in the first film, which I I didn't hate, but I didn't love either. Uh, and I felt like th- this movie was its its cartoon comicness was more effective again, not perfectly, but more effective than in the first film. And the sort of the the, the slight nastiness of all the characters. I, I thought was amusing for the most part, rather than irritating. Mm, yeah. Can I also just shout out the uh, the other cameo we haven't mentioned, which is having Hugh Grant show up as Blanc's husband briefly is um, is very charming and funny. Yeah, that was, it's funny. I, again, there there are lots of nice little touches uh, to this. Like for instance, the um, the puzzle box that they get at the beginning of the the movie uh, that you know the the most of the characters set about to solve while Jan- Janelle Monae's character. Uh, just smashes it up with a sledgehammer is is a again it's a nice little way of thinking about these stories and I you know I I've I we haven't even really spoil I I feel like we should not spoil if you if you haven't watched it you should go watch it and to to see what the the ultimate resolution here is because it's it is it, it's a fun family watch I do think this is the sort of thing that you can watch with with you know grown grown up children can watch with their grown up parents and not be uh, bored or embarrassed by one exit question here. Is this the only... I'm, I, I I was trying to think while I was watching it. Is this the only real pandemic movie that, like, kind of, 
uses the pandemic as uh, Kimmy, which yeah, uh, the the Soderbergh film loved. that we watched Kimmy, uh, on yeah, HBO Kimmy. Max earlier this year, which was great. Um, and I think the other movie that I think does a very good job of using the pandemic as a backdrop for, uh, again, a kind of a, a thriller mystery, you know, less um, less comic than Knives Out too, but it's sort of it's it's a useful and it's a it's an effective use of of the pandemic as a backdrop and as an environment. Yeah, that's a good one. I had forgotten about Kimmy. All right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery? Peter? It's not perfect, but thumbs up. Alyssa? Thumbs up. It's reasonably enjoyable, even if it's not perfect. Yeah, um, medium thumbs up. A thumbs up of medium size for me. You know, like this, like half the little carpal or whatever. Thumb uh, up. Uh, Thumb, thumb up. All right. Uh, that is it for this week's show. Make sure to swing by atma.thebulwark.com to get more episodes of the show. We actually don't have a bonus episode this week because of holiday schedules and all that. So uh, apologies for that. But, you know, you'll, I think you'll survive. Uh, make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. <laughs>